0: Hi, it's Alex. Thanks for downloading the Youth in Education podcast and welcome to our new series, The Life Pedagogic. In this series of podcast episodes, we'll be interviewing high profile guests about their life and work within the youth and education sectors. Guests will come from a wide range of disciplines, including internationally. These podcasts will be exploratory open discussions, inviting you into the speaker's worlds and encouraging challenging thinking. We hope you enjoy listening.
1: Teachers, school leaders, and policymakers in the UK are probably more interested in educational research than ever before. But here's the problem. Most research in our field has long been too dense and jargon heavy for lay folk to understand. What's required is an emissary between the world of research and practice to explain just what the research shows. Professor John Hattie is perhaps the most successful of those emissaries The closest thing education research has to a rock star, his 2009 book, Visible Learning, has been a bible for evidence-based educational practice ever since its publication. But does visible learning really translate into practice? To answer this question, we'll be joined by a primary school teacher. Hopefully the fact that his name is Kyle Hattie and he's John's son won't bias his judgment. John Hattie, welcome to your Life Pedagogic.
2: Great to be here, Baz.
1: Kyle Hattie, welcome to Your Life Pedagogic.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: Kyle Hattie, this podcast is all about how children grow up to become passionate and world-changing educators. So it feels fitting that you should be joining me here today, given that you and your dad are about to release a book all about how the findings of evidence-based education can be used to raise children. Could you tell me about how the book, 10 Steps to Develop Great Learners, Visible Learning for Parents, came about?
2: Well, it actually came about probably about six or seven years ago um, when I found out that my wife was pregnant with our first child. And I've been teaching for a while and talking to dad constantly about visible learning. And I was probably one of the guinea pigs of visible learning from the beginning. Um, And I think finding out that my wife was pregnant I started to freak out a little bit um first first child brand new dad and thinking and around the dinner table generally is it all around um the evidence of practice with teaching because we're all teachers and I think the comment was there has to be something about how to be a parent there's got to be some evidence And from that point on, I think dad started looking into going, there probably is, and started looking at all the research. So I think it sort of started off at that point with that question.
3: Baz, I'm going to come in here and say I have a different view, Kyle. I remember the night when I was up at your place with you and Jess and I was telling you what it meant to be a parent and all the anecdotes and opinions that I had. And of course, look at you guys, you turned out well, so you need to listen to my advice. And you turned to me and said, Dad, surely there's an evidence base, not just your opinion.
1: And uh, John, having written several books previously, what was it like uh, not only writing a book with your son, but writing a book about parenting with your son?
3: It's been fun. Um, the nice thing when you work with your son is that all those niceties you have to do about you're wrong and having rows and fights are a lot easier because we've had so many of them and we know how to play that game and get out of that game. We had some really good ding-dongs over this. We had to then follow up and we kind of had an agreement that if we didn't agree at the end of the, what we were working on at the moment, we'd let the evidence come to the party and, and make a decision. So that, that made it a lot sharper and that's a, a rare thing to do. And you have someone that you've known so long that you know how to have arguments with. And we also had no hurry. And as an author, that's a blessing when you don't have pressures to finish by a certain time. So it did take us what, five or six years, if I remember correctly, Kyle, um, to, to, to get there. Uh, so it was, it was a fun way of doing things.
1: And John, how do you find that the the principles of visible learning translate into the domain of parenting? Is it a, a neat and tidy transmission or is it a bit more complicated than that?
3: The one thing that the visible learning work has shown is that it's not what teachers do, it's how teachers think about what they do. And getting at that thinking of teachers, and in that jargon, we use the notion of mind frames, which is not an easy translation when we talk to parents. But that translation is why we looked at the 10 steps. There are 10 ways of thinking as a parent. Um, One example is when parents talk about their kids in various stress situations, we say, no, wait a moment, let's think about this. It's not the stress that matters. It's the coping strategies and great teachers, when they get into an awkward situation or they have a stress in the class, they think through the best kind of coping strategies to deal with the stress. They don't wallow in the stress. And so that kind of thinking is a great translation and that, um, because it came across from the visible learning work, gave us a really good head start as we were writing it. We're not looking for tips and tricks here. We're looking for a fundamental shift in what we're arguing and that if you're a parent and you want to develop great learners on the home, you need to pay a bit more attention to how you think about things, uh, whereas quite often parent books go straight to you do this, you don't do that, etc. So that's um, there is a translation there, but obviously we this is not a book about parents becoming teachers. In fact, one of our big claims in the book is parents shouldn't think of themselves as first teachers. It gets to incredible roadblocks when they do that, and I think many parents, particularly during COVID. COVID teaching discovered that they actually weren't good, good teachers at all. Our argument is parents should not think of themselves as first teachers. They should think of themselves as first learners. And that's a huge difference.
1: And Kyle, as someone who is both a parent and a teacher, how do you find managing that, uh, that, that, that challenge of not being a teacher at home and not being a parent in school?
2: That's hard. <laughs> um, because my, uh, my eldest daughter actually goes to my school. And there's been a few times where I've been out on um, supervising in the playgrounds and that, where I've actually had to talk to Emma um, as a teacher, and she's referring to me as daddy, and and, and I'm just like, no, no, I, this is any other child, this would be how I'd act. So I'm trying to act that way. It, it's it's difficult, and then coming home, and then trying to switch hats. And be a parent as well. It's it's not an easy feat, um, but I think one of the things that you keep refer, that we need to keep going back to is we're all we're, we're we're learning as as parents, and even as an educated teacher, um, I'm still learning as a parent, and I need to know when to be a parent and when to put that hat on and just stick to what parents need to know how to do love enjoy and 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 sort of support your children but then also as a teacher in the back of my mind I'm going this is what I would do as a teacher (laughs) it's it's a constant balance between the two um so I think actually as a
1: teacher it makes it harder Well, the book sounds fascinating, guys, and I'm really looking forward to reading it. 10 Steps to Develop Great Learners, Visible Learning for Parents. Can't wait to check it out. Um, John Hattie, I now want us to take a deep dive into the annals of your past. What's your very first memory of being in a school?
3: It was in about year one or two, I can't remember. And we're being taught the times table. And back then, and I won't tell you when it was, but it was in the 1950s. It was very rote. Um, and a lot of rehearsal, and I remember walking home to lunch in front of everybody, oh, I'm embarrassed about this now, saying the times tables aloud, Um, and I think it was that memory of doing that, it's probably the memory of everyone probably looking askance at this idiot that did times tables outside the classroom. So that's my very first memory, rote learning,
1: and uh, John, what kind of uh, what kind of student were you when you were at school? Whether that's uh, at that age or as you grew up,
3: I look back and say I was brought up in a, a small regional town in New Zealand. It was the days when you know TV did not exist. We never had a car. I never left the city till I was about twelve or thirteen. Even, you know, even going to the countryside that was a foreign concept. And so I look back to the incredible naivety that I had. Like, on my birth certificate, my father was a cobbler. Um, no one told me that we were on the poor side of town. No one told me that I couldn't. No one told me that my destiny was my postcode. And so I'm, I am so grateful for that, that I was not pigeonholed or labelled. And I was i was an okay student. I wasn't you know, brilliant or top of the class or anything like that. I probably cruised a bit too much through school, um, reasonably quiet, Um, that was the nature of the town, that was the nature of the family. So nothing stood out. I I left school, and uh, not left school, during school, I started my apprenticeship as a painter and paper hanger. And after a year, I realised there were very few skills to learn and I had two more years of apprenticeship and those few skills I still didn't have. And so I discovered that if you went to a teacher's college, the government paid you to be a student and paid your way through. My dream was to get out of that little town. That was my way of getting out. So that's what led me to where I am now.
1: And as as a particular field of uh, study, can you take us through, uh, John Hattie, how you got to be so interested my in evidence-based education? My uh,
3: background is in measurement and statistics. My PhD is in that area. Um, and I teach those courses in statistics and research design that I'm sure you'd love to do, Baz, when you went through uh, your courses as well. And I got my first job and the place I went to, uh, northern New South Wales, they they very much welcomed me. But there was that sense of, but you're different. You're not a real teacher. You're not a real educator. I did have a couple of years of real teaching and that kind of helped. But I was seen as different. And everybody was very nice to me. And they all took me aside and told me what I should do if I was going to be an educator. And one told me I needed to study curriculum. And another said it was communications. Another said it was gaming. And the next one, technology. And my fascination was everybody told me what really mattered. And they were passionate. And they had incredible evidence to make their case. But they're all different. And then I went into a bit of um, teacher education. And it was the same when you went to schools. Every teacher, they knew exactly uh, what to do to be a great teacher. They usually said, come and watch me teach, which I've now learned is a, a foolish thing to say. Um, but they're all different. And, and I know as a kid that teachers aren't all equally brilliant. Um, why are we in a profession that's surrounded by so much evidence that people can use to justify any method in any way they want to teach? And so with my measurement hat on, I said, okay, can I change the question from what works to what works best? Now, ironically, In 1976, I went to my first American Education Research Conference, and the keynote speaker was this guy called Gene Glass, and he introduced this notion of meta analysis, which is a statistical way of doing literature reviews. And the best way to learn about how to do one of them is I did one with a colleague. I did a few more, and they're a very powerful method. And then the moment struck me one day, actually, I was in Washington State, sitting there thinking, wow. What if I did a meta-analysis of meta-analysis? Would that help me answer my question, what works best? So that's how it all started.
1: And we will definitely be coming back to the question of uh, visible learning, John, which I think is where you're going there. Um, Kyle, I think the question that's uh, on everyone's lips is, what's it like going to school with a parent who's a professor of education? Um, was John grilling your teachers on the effect sizes of their practices at parents' evening?
2: Yeah, it was always one of those things where um, when I was at school, I didn't realize it. Hmm. I think when dad was first starting out and going through the motions of visible learning, um, it wasn't quite a thing back then. But it really became something different when the book came out. Um, Obviously, as a high school student, I had no idea what visible learning was. I knew it was something dad was working on, um, but didn't realize what impact it will have. Started hearing the Hattie name. First with my older brother. Wasn't a great, <laughs> it was uh, a different Hattie name when, when they're talking about my older brother. But um, in university is sort of when it started to creep in that the Hattie name was, had a bit of a, um, a story behind it. But I think the one thing that kept that I kept going back to was the the idea that dad kept saying before is every teacher knew how to say what worked and it did. And it was one of those things where you keep having to look at what you're doing and sort of see the evidence base behind it and sort of keep trying to better that. And yet the... The name every now and then, there were some expectations on me as a teacher. Um, but at the same time, what dad was doing was trying to figure out what was working best. And as a teacher myself, that's something that I kept trying to do, trying to figure out what worked best. Read the research, read the learning, kept kept striving and trialing in, my, in, in the classroom to see if what dad was talking about was actually working and it does and that's and that sort of kept me kept me going as a teacher
1: and Carl, um certain professions uh, such as medicine and law are really running dynasties in families um i'm not sure if i've ever uh, really known teaching to be one so i'm really interested to know how you got interested in wanting to be a teacher particularly coming from a house of educators how much of an influence that was
2: um it was actually not an influencer at all. I think when I first, um, when mom and dad first asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, it was a builder. I liked creating things. I liked working with power tools sort of thing. Um, but then really quickly, I realized that being a builder, need math. And I didn't like math. <laughs> um, but then what got me interested in teaching was I used to coach water polo. So I played it as a sport, um, all through high school, really enjoyed it, enjoyed swimming, enjoyed the people I was playing, um, doing that with. Um, and then realized I was actually better at teaching people how to play it than I was at actually playing the sport myself. And then got me thinking I could do this as a job. Didn't want to do one thing. Um, so I really enjoyed the fact of, teaching something, and then the, the kids that I was working with were actually picking it up and starting to get excited about what they were doing. And that's sort of when teaching sort of came about. Um, I think if Dad answered that question, he would always say that Kyle always said he didn't want to do what Dad does. <laughs> um, but I think the longer I'm in education, the more I'm sort of seeing the impacts of it. And I, t- I tell the kids I teach, I, I teach because I can't sing or dance. But the, the real reason behind it is I really enjoy just sharing what I know. Going back and looking at how I was taught as a kid, all the things that were really good about my education, all the things, all the teachers that were amazing that I still remember, I try to replicate. And then all the teachers that I had that weren't, that I thought, didn't have an impact, I tried to do something different and keep learning and keep trying to make sure that learning is fun because it is fun. It's hard. It's tricky. But it's one of those things that you need day to day. And the more we can get kids and the the students we have and the kids we have to enjoy learning things about their world, the better it's going to be.
1: And John, what was your reaction when you found out that Carl was going to be uh, going Obviously, to pursue teaching?
2: We were, as
3: parents, delighted. Um, and now three of our family, and extended family, are teachers. So maybe there is a gene pool out there. But the, one of the hardest things I've had to do as a, as a father is watch my son go through a teacher education program at the institution I was teaching at at the time. And it was bloody awful. Um, and that was a really tough thing to watch. But you can't do much because I'm just a parent, even though I was a member of the faculty. Um, you're just a parent. And at that age, Carl wasn't probably as keen at listening to his father's pearls of wisdom as he was at um, his lecturers. And it was a, sometimes he went through tough times and I knew that they were unnecessary tough times, but you can't do anything about it. But he got through, um, he's done very well as a teacher. So it, I think, the fact that i was restrained from doing anything was a good thing in retrospect but it was a very hard thing to do to watch him it would be a lot easier for instance if he had gone on to be a builder because i couldn't have done anything um, in these training. <laughs> so it was it was hard on the father watching him go through
1: and john earlier you talked about how when you were growing up um no one ever talked to you about being demographically disadvantaged no one ever told you that you couldn't do anything How's that influenced your parenting of Kyle? Do you think? And of course, uh,
3: as a parent, we we deliberately took the 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 purpose was we wanted our kids to have a fun childhood. And my view today is, if kids have a really fun childhood, they will be great adults. Um, All this notion about you preparing them for the future—well, the reality is, they decide their future. They make their future. And so we probably weren't as strict on them as perhaps we should have. Probably we weren't as diligent at making them do things that we probably should have. But I hope that they will say one day, they haven't said it yet, and Kyle, you can say it now if you want. I hope they say, we had a fun childhood. We were given lots of opportunities to have fun. Um, because I think it's the same message, you know, Kyle was saying it in those words. I want learning to be fun. I want people, kids to have passions about their learning that's fun. Does it really matter that they study dinosaurs to the nth degree, but they're not going to grow up and be a, a dinosaur expert? No, it's the deep fun of learning. So that's what we've decided to do as kids, as parents.
1: And Kyle, would you say that you had a fun childhood? Can we have that on the record now?
2: I did have a fun childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that because it's on the podcast.
1: If you've got nothing else out of today, John, you've got that. (laughs) Yep,
2: too true. There was that element of you need to do what the parents actually say you need to do. So mum and dad always talked about, always made sure that we were following the behaviours and rules, because as a kid you need to, but at the same time there was that element of if this fails, we'll see what happens yeah. <laughs> because that's where learning happens. Not all the time that you can constantly wrap your children in cotton wool and protect them from stuff. So- so, sometimes you just have to let the let the kids. I remember the time, car
3: when you wanted to learn how to play crib, and the first few games, I beat the fence off you. And you were a bit astonished as an eight- or nine-year-old that the father would be so mean. And I introduced rules by telling him, oh, you didn't take the extra uh, point for turning the jack over, so I get it. And so you were quite almost angry at the time, but, wow, did you learn fast.
2: You didn't quite teach me the rules. You waited until I made the mistake and then told me, that that was a rule.
3: Well, as you say, <laughs> I, I taught you how to fail and how to get out of it, and now you can beat me at crib a lot. <laughs> you better step in here, Baz. We're Mostly about to have time. a, a father son fight.
1: Uh, I'm ha- happily happy to uh, adjudicate there and step in to um, ask us about your your, your magnum office, uh, Professor John Hattie, uh, Visible Learning. It's sold over a million copies, been translated into twenty nine languages. Um, when I started teaching, it was huge, and I can't even imagine the number of teachers to whom it's introduced the idea of effect sizes, let alone the general idea that you can systematically demonstrate that some uh, instructional methods are more effective than others. Um, could you take us through your journey of writing it? How you got interested in the idea of a meta meta analysis and well, the journey of writing it?
3: Carrying on from uh, leaving off before about uh, to, to this idea of doing a synthesis of meta analysis like it took me about 30 to 40 years to collect the data uh, because the first trials i did of it and first things i published were very small and small databases then it got bigger and then i went i moved to new zealand i decided that it was time to put it away for a while um and i I did other things because you know my background as i say is in measurement we developed the new zealand measurement system for schools which is we're very proud of the fact that it's voluntary and about 70 to 80% of teachers in New Zealand are using that tool 20 years later. That's a very rare thing in, in measurement. Um, so we did all that. And then I thought, well, wait a moment, it's starting to get enough now. But the hardest thing wasn't collecting the data. The reason it took me 10 or 15 years and so many trials and failures was to work out the story. What's the, what's the data telling us? And so when it finally came through, like the big moment came when I made that switch and said, oh, goodness gracious, it's all this looking for attributes of teachers, uh, attributes of their teaching methods, uh, what's the best curriculum, all that. It was, wait a moment, it's all upside down. It's not identifying good teachers by are they doing the right stuff? It's identifying great teachers by the impact they're having. And so I'm not so interested in teaching I'm much more interested in the impact of teaching and so that helped create the story Um, and then away I went and I'd have to say I did many trials I remember the fourth version I wrote oh my gosh Baz it was beautiful it was 500 pages of tables and graphs and statistics and variances and heterogeneities and hedges corrections you cannot believe how wonderful it was and my biggest critic my wife read it and she said which two people in the world have you written this for? Now, that hurt. It really hurt. And she was so right. And I was writing it once again for myself and perhaps one or two others. And so the best decision I ever made was I threw the whole thing out, expunged it. It does not exist. And started again saying, you know, I've done this for years, but I never, ever realized till it was my 10th book, this one. I need to think of that audience sitting on my shoulder, the reader sitting on my shoulder. I'm writing for a person, a person I do not know, a person who probably doesn't know or care about standard deviations. And so I wrote that version. And going back, one, another thing I said earlier, I'm so grateful I never had pressure to finish because if I had finished, I would have produced the 500-pager, which would have been well uh, pulped by now in the back archives of some library somewhere. But trying to write it in a more readable story, even though when I finished and Janet read it again, she said, well done, you've moved from 10 to about 50 people. And so I never expected it to do as well as it did, because it is got a lot of numbers and statistics in it. And so I'm very humbled by the fact that it did do quite so, it has sold quite well. And since then, I've been learning how to refine the story and improve the story.
1: Yeah, I think picking up on that point, John, I think, you know, despite its enormous success, it's certainly been a book that's been frequently misunderstood. How do you think that people misunderstand it? And knowing what you know now about those misunderstandings, is there anything you would do differently if you were to write it again? Well, I actually am writing
3: it again. And it won't look like the first one, but the world (laughs) in the last 12 years has produced a hang of a lot more meta-analysis, more than doubled the 800. And I've kept on top of them all. And so I am re-looking at the whole one, but particularly looking at the big messages. And I, and I take responsibility for a lot of the misunderstandings, Baz. Like after I finished that final version, when Janet read through it, she invented the um, barometers that are in the book. And they've been, a, in retrospect, a very good anchoring of making it easier to read. But I also, at the last minute, decided to put an appendix with all the, all the data in it ranked, and in many ways, that got a lot of attention, so I don't begrudge it, but it led to probably the greatest misinterpretation, that things at the top were good and things at the bottom were bad. Some of those things at the bottom, we should deeply care about and understand why they're so low, so we improve them. And my best example is homework in primary school, the effect size is close to zero. My intention never was to say we should abolish homework. It should be, let's understand why it's low in primary school and high in high school and improve the nature of homework in primary school. So I got that wrong. um, And and that's one of the reasons I switched to the notion of know they impact. And that also was many schools and even some governments said, oh, the answer is invisible learning. Now you have to do A, B, C. You have to do these things. Well, again, it misses the point. Research and visible learning is about a probability statement. If you do these things, the probability is you'll have higher impact than if you do those things. But the truth comes in terms of how you do it in your class. And so, yes, I want you to start with high probability interventions, but if you implement it badly, you're not going to get that high effect. And so that's where I moved again to that know-they impact. Okay, so you're going to adopt these policies in your system, in your school, in your class. Check the impact yourself. Now, it may not match up with what the average of all effects are. There is a probability statement there, so yes, I'm pleased you're using the high probability ones, but you don't stop there. And I remember speaking to a minister of education in your country, um, and he was very proud of the fact, in the opening conversation, he said, you'll be so pleased, John, next year I'm introducing the year of feedback into England. And the conversation went downhill immediately with my answer when I said to him, oh, minister, and what do you do the year after, no feedback? Well, I was literally shunted out of the office about three minutes later. (laughs) But but it's that notion, we're going to pick up this new fad and do it because it's a very high thing. And then we're going to move to something else. It missed the point. And so what I'm writing now is trying to put the story right up front uh, and hang the data off it rather than the other way around, which is kind of what I wrote in Visible Learning. So, yeah. But then a couple of years ago, um, a colleague and I hunted for every criticism we could find of Visible Learning and we found about 100 different criticisms. But the fascinating thing is about 80% of those criticisms were minuscule. They were about the ranking. They are about, oh, you can't add the two influences together. Well, if you'd read page two of the book, it said that. Oh, um, there's much more important things in schools than achievement. If you read page three, you would have seen that. Um, and all, the, and they were all kind of small things. And I'm not saying there's no errors in it, but they're all small. A couple of years ago, um, I released a website called MetaX, it's free, it's got all the data on it. And my challenge to my colleagues, and I have the world's best critics, which I'm very proud of, is don't spend 30, 40 years collecting the data. Here it is all free. Come up with a better story. And I really would love to think that someone would do that. No one's done it yet after 10, 12 years. But I think that's what my challenge is out there is I am delighted and I'll be your first supporter if you come up with a better story because that's how... our our field progresses.
1: Kyle, when you uh, first entered the classroom, what was the state of evidence-based practice? Um, and how does John's story of visible learning map onto your own experience?
2: I think when I first entered the classroom, I didn't look at visible learning, to be honest. It's one of those things as a... And, and Dad's heard the story oh, before. Oh, oh. When I first started teaching, my sole purpose was figure out how to teach. (laughs) Um, I had to go through some trial. I had to go through through some error. And I think after a few years, um, went from single cell classroom. And then after about three years, four years, went to a modern learning environment. Which is a class going from a single-cell classroom of about 25-30 kids to a four-teacher classroom of about a hundred kids. And instantly, my after the first year, I think I told Dad, your whole notion of class size is wrong. I've had a good effect on <laughs> with a large class size, small class size doesn't, you know, the the whole idea. Um, and then I think dad challenged me back and said, what did you do differently? And that's when I started to click. It's not around the class size. It's not around what, it's how you impact it differently. And I think as a teacher, you have to trial it and you have to be ready for it. Um, throughout my 10, 11, 11 years, I think I've been teaching, um, education's changed drastically. What I knew and what I thought was really good practice in my first few years of teaching is now completely different to what I'm thinking now. And it's one of those things where, and Dad just said it, you need to keep on top of it. You need to keep challenging and writing the story and proving everything. Because everything makes an impact. You've just got to... Keep going is what makes the most impact. comment
3: there, Baz. In case any parents are out there worrying that their um, kid has got a, a reasonably new teacher that's experimenting on them, as Carl was inferring, I take the argument that what Carl was doing in those first few years, he was much more attentive to the impact he was having on kids. Once you get to the ten years, the worry is you start to get into a routine. And you do things, and if it doesn't work, you blame the kids, or you blame the resources, or you blame the class size, or you blame the leader. In those early years, most teachers are very, very attentive to the reaction of the students, and I think that's something that we should never lose. So what you're doing in those first few years of experimenting, I hope you continue to do your whole career. We must always improve.
1: John Hattie, there's two questions that we always ask all of our guests. Uh, I'll ask you uh, one of them first, and then we will move over to Kyle. Something you've really changed your mind on in education uh, over the course of your career, and what changed your mind about it?
3: For many years, I was searching for the problems in education, and you know, I took the high and mighty line that you know, in universities, we exist to deal with the most difficult problems, to find the biggest problems and try and fix them. After Visible Learning and after going into schools that were implementing the Visible Learning methods, I've completely switched. And the reason I'm keeping going is the amount of excellence out there is stunning. Why is it, and this is a reflection on me here, why is it that we spend most of our life looking for problems and trying to fix them, where instead we should be looking for success and trying to scale that up? And I'm not bad at searching literature, Baz. When I search literature and education for articles on scaling up success, I'm up to Article 8. It's just not what we do. And I now have a a more political role here in Australia uh, with with government, and I'm always trying to convince ministers and director generals that we're, like, in the term of your office, it should be a badge of courage that you don't go to Singapore, Shanghai or Finland. Excellence is around you. Have you got the courage to identify that excellence and ask how do we scale that up? It's tough because the biggest resistance of that argument is often the educators, and we know why. It's much easier to get money and resources for failure than it is for success. But it's not helping us as a profession when we have I, every school we've ever worked in, and we work with about ten thousand schools a year. There are pockets of success, and identifying that. Like the worst thing you can do in some schools is to change them. They're already successful. Yeah, we can improve them, but the last thing you want to change them. And I see principals go to a new school, and I, not often, but sometimes you see principals ruin brilliant schools because they want to adopt the particular methods they've used. So the biggest change in my life is realizing that we should start from, a, from the reality of the success and scale it up and not keep looking for problems and trying to fix it. And them. Kyle,
1: the same question to you. What have you changed your mind on over the course of
2: your education career and what changed your mind? The biggest thing that changed my thinking around teaching would be teaching is not about the teacher. It's, and I think the teachers listening would sort of understand this as well. So I think that's the biggest thing that I've sort of changed as a teacher is not just knowing what I've done year to year that I really like. And as a teacher, I try not to hoard materials. I throw away a lot more materials than I keep because I know that even though this one lesson worked with these group of kids, it may not work the same the next year.
1: And Carl, if we could stick with you, another question we always ask our guests is, what two things would you really like to see change in the current education system? And I'm very happy for you to talk either about the current system in England or the current system in Australia, if you're more comfortable and familiar with that.
2: Um. The current system in Australia, I've only been teaching in Australia for two years, but I think what I've realized in my career over two countries is the idea of it's worked before or the status quo. I think it's something that a lot of schools, a lot of teachers and a lot of students like to keep is... The status quo, this is what we do. This is the one, what the method. And different schools have their different ways of saying it. Um, but it's the way we do things. And actually, that's one pet peeve I really dislike is the way we do things. Because you can't have one way of doing things. It doesn't work. And it's that idea of um, one school does this, one school does that, one school does this, Um, public education, private education, all of that. They do all these different things that they say, this is the school's way of doing it. And you can't just keep to one way. You've got to keep looking at what is actually happening and what is working for the students. There is a lot of research out there and visible learning is that as well, saying that there are lots of ways of doing things and you gotta keep progressing with the evidence base, figuring out what works best and keep progressing. Take the things that are working well and keep trying to make them work better. And John,
1: I'd come to you now and ask you um, the same question. What two things would you really like to see change in the uh, education system, whether that's in England or in Australia, whichever you're more comfortable talking about?
3: Yeah, my my first one, Baz, is um, if I have any influence in my um, quasi-political role here in Australia, it's this simple. I want to reintroduce the notion of expertise back into the profession. We wrote a book a couple of years ago, The Turning Point, where we argued that the essence of our profession as a teacher is expertise, and we went into some more detail about the nature of that. We called it evaluative thinking, Um, and it's a very precious gift in art, and teachers have it. Um, We saw it in COVID. Um, It's the essence of what makes great teachers is that expertise. But we tended to write it. Like I look around your country and mine, and there's a massive politics of distraction. Like we tweak the curriculum almost every few years. We fiddle with the tests. Like in your country, you rename schools and call them trusts or academies. You do all the things that have very, very low impact on kids learning. But that seems to be the essence of the politic. And I kind of know why, because that's what governments have more control over. Once the kid crosses the school gate or the classroom door gets closed, governments have very little control, so they don't like to give money for things they have no control over. But it's killing us. I look in your country and see the, the massive growth of amateurs in schools, teaching assistants. And if you look at Peter Blanchford's work out of England, you know they have a zero to negative impact on the kids. Now, to be fair to Peter, he and his team have spent the last 10 years realising they're not going away, and how do we improve their impact? But it's really tough to have that conversation because they're seen as nice people, which is one of their problems is that they're so nice, they do the work for the kids. But we don't have those debates. So how do we invest in that expertise? How do we recognize it? How do we get our teacher training institutions realizing that it is that combination of high ability, high passion, love of kids, it's all those things. Um, and it's not something that any Tom, Dick or Harry can do. So that's my first is let's reintroduce expertise as the major fundamental issue of funding, of rhetoric, of discussion. And I've challenged it. I've challenged in England, uh, every pr- principles association I've ever met, what do you stand for? And they don't tend to stand for valuing expertise. They value autonomy, which I'm not a fan of, you have, if you're not having a high impact, you have no right to autonomy. It is about expertise. So that's my first one. My second one. And again, it comes out and I discussed this in England last week with a, a great book. They um, Mick Waters and Tim Brighouse, which I know you, you are at um, the, the opening of that, uh, the book launch. One of the issues is that, and let me go to COVID again. During COVID, our world was disrupted and uh, There wasn't a policy book, there wasn't a playbook, and I don't know, to this day, any policy that's come from any government in the world, other than whether schools should open and close, that said, here's the script and the way you teach during COVID teaching. But if you look at the evidence that's starting to come out already, including, ironically, two meta-analyses, if you compare the trajectory of kids from the start to the end of the year in 2020, during the COVID teaching year, with previous years, on average there's hardly a difference. And that surely is a function of the expertise of the educators. And so what did they do that was so good? Well, one of the things they did was they started by saying and talking to each other collectively by saying, you know, what are you doing that's working? How do you deal with the fact that the kids don't have their screens on and they're working from their bedroom and got all this? How do we get the resources out there? And furthermore, we saw more school leaders talking to other school leaders about how they were solving their problems and where they were finding excellence and how they were scaling it up. And you heard governments listening to principals about what do you need right now? How can we best resource you? And think about it, Baz. It's the complete opposite to normality. Normality Normality is someone in a government office sits there, comes up with a policy, and then it's filtered down or pushed down onto schools, which may or may not be filtered down into a classroom. During COVID, it was the opposite. We sought expertise about policy. If I could have any influence, I would love to see a way that we could grow that listening to the expertise. Now, I know they won't all agree. That's the absolute reality. But there must be ways, maybe an independent commission between government and schools where they advise on policy. But we really do need to ask our brains trust out there to think of ways where we could harness the expertise out in schools. Like in your country and mine, schools compete for kids. So there are massive contingencies for for school leaders not to talk to each other. That's bonkers. The answer is already out there. We just don't know how to harness it.
1: Absolutely fascinating, John. Um, I think it's fair to say that it's been a fascinating conversation with both of you, John and Kyle. Um, It's been an absolute privilege having you on the podcast. Um, I'm really looking forward to reading the new book, Visible Learning for Parents. And I think after this conversation, I might even give the original Visible Learning a little revisit. So uh, John Hattie, Uh, I hope you've enjoyed your life pedagogic.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks a
2: lot.
1: And Kyle Hattie, I hope you've enjoyed your life pedagogic as well.
2: Thank you very much for having us both. We love making this podcast.
0: If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, then there are a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you are listening. Two, share. Share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.